0: Hello and welcome to Ringwoods Podcast. As your host Rosie Watts, each week I am joined by a series of authors, colleagues and guest visitors to discuss all things books and publishing. Welcome back to Ringwood's podcast. This week, a bit of a different location in Edinburgh. You can tell it's sunny over this way, isn't it? I am joined by Tom Wood, author of Ruxton. Thank you very much for coming on today. Nice to see you. And I'm aware that you have a podcast coming up in the near future with your book, Ruxton, Across the Pond, is that correct?
1: That's correct, yes. Ruxton, the first modern murder, has been bought by an American TV and podcast company, and they're developing it at the moment. So hopefully that should hit the streets in about October. So I'm very excited, looking forward to it, and with a bit of luck it'll then go on television.
0: Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, today, moving away from that podcast, yep. uh, we're focusing on our own Ringwood Publishing. Want to tell me a bit more about the Birkenhead Riders with our upcoming novel Body Snatcher? I'm hoping you can provide us some more social context because you've done some research for your new book.
1: That's right. The Westport Murders, as they were called more formally, The Crimes of Birkinhead, were hugely important in a number of ways And, and I'm very interested in the book that's coming out. I'm looking forward to reading it very much. I've written about it from the context of what it meant socially and what it meant for policing and what it meant for the legal system and the medical profession in Edinburgh. Because the Birkenhere murders, the the Westport murders, were kind of a watershed. They were a, a demarcation line between the old 18th century where with abject squalor in parts of Edinburgh, very, very poor public health, complete lack of any kind of law enforcement. And after the Westport murders, the crimes of Birkenhaer, there were all sorts of new improvements brought in improvements to public health, the formation of public baths, washhouses, and other sanitary things to try and improve the life of poorer people living in the big cities. But it also brought huge change to policing and also, of course, the regulation of the medical profession, because the Anatomy Act, which was brought in in the immediate aftermath and because of the Birkenhere murders, actually regulates and still regulates the way that the medical profession deal with human remains, and that's still very much uh, a living legacy of the Birkenhere crimes.
0: Definitely. You talk about a lot about the anatomy and importance of it and the medical side, and you've mentioned previously about the sort of tears and the importance in society and... You believe that the academic was
1: at the top. Very much so. Ed- Edinburgh in the early part of the 19th century was very much a pecking order. And right at the stop was Edinburgh University, hugely influential and massively wealthy. And you had professors of anatomy, surgeons like Dr. Robert Knox, who, of course, features very strongly in the and Hare story. They were hugely powerful, influential men. Knox had 400 private students attending his lectures from all over the world. Edinburgh University and the, the School of Surgery were famous throughout the world and attracted students who wanted to come and learn at the feet of the very, very best and most learned of professors. So it really was at the very top of society. But of course, the problem was that in the days before refrigeration, they needed fresh subjects. They needed fresh bodies. And if you consider Dr Knox as one example, and remember that there were four or five people working in this field at the time, Dr Knox needed fresh bodies continuously. There were only so many legal sources of bodies, foundlings as they described it, so that's itinerants who were found dead and had no family, or people who were executed, and albeit there were a fair number of them, there was nowhere near enough. And so there was a tremendous demand for fresh bodies, and if there is a demand, there will be a supply. We see that today, we see that today in drugs, we see that today in the sex trade. If there's a demand, then somebody will come up with a supply. And that is the background story to Birkenheir. You're
0: talking about these continuous need for bodies weekly because, as you say, they need to be fresh. And as we know historically, there were only 16. Give or take victims off of Birkenhead. Do you believe that was enough, or do you think there's more that
1: aren't accounted? I think before? I think the best the best guess is closer to fifty-five zero. Remember that Burke and Birkenhead during that year of eighteen twenty-seven to eighteen twenty-eight, they spent that whole year in a kind of a drunken sort of phase. So. The thought that they could remember exactly who they had killed and who they had provided, I think a bit fanciful. The truth of the matter is that they forgot very quickly and there were so many unknown vagrants going around the big cities, the big industrial cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow. Nobody knew who was there, nobody knew who lived or died and frankly nobody cared. There were an awful lot of poor people, many of them itinerant Irish labourers or people who had come from the north of Scotland seeking a subsistence way of life. Nobody knew how many there were, so nobody knew actually, and nobody will ever know, how many of them ended up on the surgeon's table. Now, Birkin here may have dispatched as many as 50 but remember, there were other people also supplying bodies to the surgeons. Definitely. So there may have been many, many more and we will never know. The thing is that a lot has been made of the resurrectionists, that's people who were disinterring bodies from graves. That's vastly overstated because the problem was then that, quite frankly, by the time someone is buried in a coffin, the body is not fresh. And the one thing that the surgeons demanded was that the bodies be fresh. Because if you think about it, if they're lecturing to people paying big money, the last thing they can provide is a dead body for dissections that's putrefying and smelling. Remember, no refrigeration, so it's a pretty difficult job.
0: Yes, that whole notion of grave robbing was actually maybe slightly more flawed.
1: Yeah, grave robbing took place, but grave robbing was actually mainly for grave goods. So people were buried with valuables for a lot of grave robbing. It wasn't for the body, it was for grave goods. Now there was some disinterring for the doctors, but it was minimal. Much, much better to get fresh bodies who are they? died of natural causes and tremendous numbers of people were succumbing to illnesses such as tuberculosis or alcohol intoxication. Tremendous numbers of people. But of course, even that didn't satisfy the demand. And so Burke and Hare came up with a logical answer, and that is to make sure that demand was met. And they met the demand by uh, hastening people who were probably not in the best of health, hastening them off early and providing the fresh body to the surgeons.
0: And yes, you know, was a story snatcher and you want to come that that was definitely true. The conditions at the time in Edinburgh were, yep. as anyone would know, pretty horrific. Can you provide any more information about the drinking habits and the living conditions in Edinburgh that led to these deaths?
1: Well, in Edinburgh as in most cities, you had a very, very divided society. So in Edinburgh you had the gentry who lived in the new town of Edinburgh from 1800 onwards, but you then had the soldiers who were at the castle, and of course the soldiers provided steady trade for particularly for the sex industry. You had the university, who were hugely successful and hugely powerful, politically influential, and then you had a lot of very, very poor people living in situations of poverty that we can't imagine now, quite frankly, and who every day was a struggle to live. It was a hand-to-mouth existence and they struggled begging or selling any sort of goods they could.
0: Moving back to this ranking, can you tell us more about that and the police role?
1: Well, the modern police service really started in Scotland in 1800 in the city of Glasgow. 1805, the city of Edinburgh police was formed. Now, it's interesting that a lot of people think that the modern policing started in London with the the Metropolitan Police in 1829. In actual fact, they were 30 years after Glasgow and 25 years after Edinburgh. So Glasgow and Edinburgh really were at the very forefront of establishing a modern police service. The police service in Edinburgh, when it was formed in 1805, was not just responsible for policing, it was also responsible for the fire service, the ambulance service, the lighting service, and even the street cleaning service. There were police scavengers, and they were people who cleared the streets. So the modern police service came in 1805, but a lot of people were suspicious of it. It was quite expensive. They were concerned that actually, come the day, they wouldn't stand up very well to often problematic public order situations that were in, in the big cities, where a mob could quickly form and where law and order really hung by a thread. So the Burke and hare murders was a, a real testing ground for the new policing system. And they came through because associated with the murders were also several quite severe public order situations. There were riots or near riots, before the trial of Burke and Helen MacDougall. There were then quite serious public disturbances at the execution of Burke. And thereafter, once Burke had been hanged and once Hare had fled the city of Edinburgh, there was then a mob who set out to gain vengeance against the surgeons, and particularly against Robert Knox. So there were a whole series of quite violent confrontations between the new Edinburgh City Police and the mob, who had gathered in Edinburgh, who believed that justice had not been done. They thought that William Burke, okay, he had been hanged, that's fine, but they thought that it was injustice that Hare had escaped justice. They were very, very angry that the two wives had escaped justice, and they were particularly very angry about how Dr Robert Knox, the eminent professor, the eminent surgeon, somehow managed to escape justice. And so there was this mob mentality, and the new Edinburgh City Police had to face that down. So it was their first great test.
0: With... Burke's history and his Irish descent and immigration over Scotland were any of these mobs fueled by anti-Irish resentment? Yes,
1: there was. I mean, the local newspapers had a huge influence in this. There was a newspaper called the Edinburgh Current, and of course, the Scotsman the newspaper that I write for now. The Scotsman founded in eighteen fifteen. So they were carrying lurid stories. There was no legal protection then. There was no contempt of court. They could print anything they wanted. And it, there was a very, very strong anti-Irish, anti-Catholic sentiment towards it. There are several uh, articles which talk about Burke and Hare as being of the Roman Catholic persuasion, whatever that means. So there was a lot of that. And, of course, that helped to inflame the mob even further.
0: I can imagine. And how did that relate to Burke's wife, Helen MacDougall, because she was Scottish?
1: It's very funny because there's some newspaper articles which talk about Helen MacDougall and talk about her as being particularly reprehensible because she doesn't even have the excuse of being Irish. She's actually Scottish <laughs> and therefore much better behaviour is expected of her. And there's some wonderful language in the local newspapers about that. But again, underneath it all is this very nasty anti-Irish, anti-Catholic sentiment.
0: Very interesting. Thank you for providing all that social context of Burke and Hare. It's very insightful and I learned a lot. But moving away from the history and moving forward into the future, what's your plans in the future? Well,
1: I've got two books on the go. One of them is already completed in draft, and that's a collection of stories, including a modern cold case review on the Westport murders, the crimes of Burke and Hare. So I'm looking at it purely through a professional lens, looking at what happened and looking at where the key turning points of the case were. So I'm taking a completely different approach to the one of the new book that's just coming out. So that'll form part of a collection of stories all about Scotland's underbelly. One of the titles is called Sex, Spies and Bloody Murder. So it's about a whole lot of stories brought together, all linked and all coming to describe the sort of conditions in Scotland's underbelly.
0: Well, I look forward to reading that in the future and hearing some of the insightful things you've
1: told me today in, in paper. Just in, in conclusion, I want the say the Hare murders really are a turning point. They're very, very interesting because, I mean, on one hand, you've got crimes here which were horrific crimes, but as well as that, they actually spell the point in history that we see turning into sort of modern policing and modern public health and modern controls. And so they're very, very important social studies as well as crimes.
0: It's a catalyst for so many things. So Indeed, many that's the one. So thank you very much for today on our Ringwood podcast and really hope we will have you back on soon. Thanks
1: thank Tom. Thank you very much.
0: Bye.